Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 27. This episode is sponsored by DeGreiter and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGreiter's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Pani Anuol. I'm an assistant professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering. In episode 25, we talked about the importance of reference letters for candidates looking for a faculty position and for faculty going up for tenure and promotions. In this episode, we'll discuss the importance of reference letters for students if they're interested in applying to graduate school or pursuing doctoral opportunities or writing a scholarship or fellowship application where they need these letters to continue their academic training. I'm sure we all have been asked a lot from students requesting these type of letters as faculty. Just to get a ballpark, of what we're looking at. I know that probably recently I would get to be asked about writing somewhere between 30 to 50 letters for these students every year on average. That's a lot. What about you guys? Mine, it's a seasonal period. When the applications like college and the department applications are open, I get random requests. My own students, when they are applying for summer internship or opportunities at the other institute or national labs, they ask. So roughly, I don't think it's 30. It varies from 10 to 15-ish or so. Yeah, for me, I think since I became an associate dean, the number of reference letters have increased, especially from students because they want to use my title as a way to add weight to their reference letter. That's right. I think that's really important too. If you get a letter from a dean, right, it weighs a lot. It means that you're connected to the university or the department or school. So I know there are many undergrads applying for grad school for master's program. That number is definitely increasing over the years from what I have observed. So to be honest, there's just so many requests and many of them are coming from students. I probably say taught for one class out of the four or five years that they were here. I would tell them that I can write you a letter, but it's not going to be a strong letter because that's all I could say about that one class. You may have gotten an A, but all I could say is he or she did well in my class. So I'm not feeling very enthusiastic writing these letters for the students that I don't really know very well. And I think that it's true for many people about, I think three weeks ago, I got a request for a reference letter and I didn't even recognize the name of the student. And I went through all these few years of teaching classes and I looked at the list and I couldn't find that person. So I don't know how I've been 
selected and having this golden opportunity to write this letter but I couldn't write anything because the student was not even in the classes that I thought so I think that it's important for the students to do their homework and not just randomly looking at people to give them recommendation letters there is a lot going on before even asking for these letters I definitely agree I think that it's become even harder for undergraduate students especially to request the letters of recommendations because since we've been in virtual space, it's become harder for the students to really engage the faculty member through a Zoom class. Most of the time, cameras are off. The body language, you, you can't tell. So I think it's becoming much harder for students to ask us to write letters. So I think we also need to be sensitive to that, but also recognize that the student is not in your class, you can't give a strong letter of recommendation. So Kim, at that position that you're having, how do you actually know these students before writing letters? Do they approach you? You had probably developed some sort of connection over the years before they asked you to write a letter for them, right? No, not necessarily, actually. So since I don't teach classes, most often I meet the students during freshman move-in week or prospective parents come visit the school, parents randomly stopping into the dean's office to find how to get to admissions <laughs> and the student will be with them. And then I just kind of naturally have a conversation. And then before long, they say, oh, can you be my mentor? Or I'm interested in physics, et cetera. And so they just keep in contact. So sometimes I've never taught the students in class, but it's more of a character letter of recommendation where I've seen them throughout the semester. I asked them how they're doing, et cetera. And I think that's also very important too, them to have a dean say, look, this person is a leader. I've seen them at student council meetings. They are doing X, Y, Z in the college. So most often it's not an academic letter that I've written. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah, I think it's really important to also know the characters of an applicant. So those type of letters would really show. So I thought about one thing is, which is a good one. Some of the reference letters that I write are initiatives that the students take on in the college. So there was this one group of students that wanted to have an undergraduate research journal. They had to engage me to talk about a budget and they put together a presentation and, you know, and so I saw all of those skills come out. I was really impressed. And so then when the president of that particular organization said, Dean Lewis, can you write a letter for me? I was like, absolutely. You did a fantastic job with this magazine. And so that was a really good experience that I had never thought about before that I would be writing a letter of recommendation to talk about the presentation skills of the, the student and how they put together a budget and all of that stuff. And they hired an editor for the magazine. And so those things are important for graduate schools to know. That's a fantastic example. I'm only teaching and most of the requests coming to me are really the students who took my classes. Very similar to Panya, I sometimes teach a hundred student class. Even if you get an A, it's not so impressive. I would not remember the name, right? Especially during COVID times. And I can't put names with faces. I'm terrible at names. And so when they ask for one, I'm just going to be honest. I don't write those letters because they took one of my classes. 
because I just think it's not strong. I tell them that. I said, I can write one, but it's not going to be a strong one. Are you sure you want me to write one? I always point them to, I said, do you, have you done some research, independent studies, or how about are you connected with your student advisor as your academic advisor? They know you better. Maybe they can show how you've grown over the years. They will probably be able to provide a better letter. So that's what I tell them. Most of them would say, okay, thank you for letting me know. That's you know, a great suggestion. And they would just go find someone else. I've had similar issues over these past few years. I think they don't know who they should ask for the letter. I think that's the big gap. They think that, oh, I got A in the class, so she or he must remember me because I performed so well. But as you said, there are so many other A's in the class. And if the class has 100 plus students, how are we going to remember all those A's? And unless... They've been showing up into the office hours, asking questions, interacting at in a personal level with the instructor. There is no way that we can remember them. I tell all my students in my group and also whenever I get a chance, I'll tell undergraduate students that you need to know who you are asking for the letter and just being in one class is not enough. Most of the time, if you are doing research, you should go directly to the person that you are working in their lab because they know all your soft skills and all these details that we need to mention in the letter. And I kind of joke and I say that we need to put you under magnifier glasses and write all the details about you. Like we need to say that if you are like among top 1% or 2% or 10% of the students that we've coached or we taught. We need to talk about your communication skills. We need to talk about so many details. It's not like, yes, this student was in my class and they got A. That's not going to get them any far in this competitive world. So, but I think the lack of knowledge of knowing who they need to ask for and what it goes to those letters is causing this issue that they just ask for whoever they can ask for. And also Kim pointed out about Zoom and COVID adding to this complexity, but I've seen some students that they are really creative. They schedule a special appointment on the Zoom and it's a one-on-one -on -one thing. You do remember those students, right? So they can be more proactive in asking for those letters and becoming more visible than just being a, a face in the class. Yeah, I agree. And all, all my own undergraduate researchers who do research in my lab, I always write fantastic letters for them because I know them. Exactly. I know how they work. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that's the key. You need to have a lot of interactions with the person that they are writing the letter for you because it's not one sentence. It's a couple right. of paragraphs and some, in some cases that when you interact a lot, it becomes two pages or three pages. Right. I think it's a development. In my point of view, you have to spend the time and effort to develop a relationship before you ask for that letter from your letter writer. 100% agree. Yes. You know, another thing I noticed, a lot of Asian students ask me to write it. I think it's just because they feel more connected because we're in the same race. It's really true. <laughs> I have a lot of, a lot of Asian students who took one of my undergraduate classes. They thought maybe because we look the same and they feel more comfortable to ask me 
even if I had said no, they're okay. But I had a lot of requests, way more Asian than any other race. That's an interesting observation. Well, I've never experienced that. I <laughs> I don't know if particular race they come to me or not, but <laughs> but I've seen those cases that I don't recognize the name. I think what we really need to tell the students is that take the time to think about these things before you ask, right? Because you don't want to wait until one week before applications are due and start thinking about whom you should ask and then just randomly ask and you will almost get a no in most cases. But I do have one student who was so persistent and then he said, I said, I can't really write a strong letter. He came back and said, that's okay. I said, okay, <laughs> that's what you want. But Hanya, you mentioned everything is so competitive these days. Graduate school application, right? So if you are applying for those fellowship awards, like NSF has a graduate fellowship awards, they're really competitive, right? So those letters really need to stand out, not just simply, oh, I've done some research. That's not even enough, right? So I have seen a lot of beautiful letters like for graduate school applications, they talk about from personality all the way to work ethics and then going back to how they interact with other students just at a, such a personal level. You would say, oh my goodness, what a great letter. You would be so impressed even if the person does not have 4.0 GPA you will be impressed because each letter carries a lot of weight. I agree. And also, I think that those competitive scholarships like NSF and many, many, many others like DOE ones, DOD ones, those, I think it's a student's responsibility to ask two months in advance. Go and recognize your letter writers, give them the instructions, what you are applying for, and give time and it's, it's a student's responsibility to follow up, not just hoping that, oh, I reached out to that faculty and I told them the deadline, they are going to do it. No, they, that's their responsibility to make sure that it's being submitted on time and it's a strong letter. One thing that I noticed, many students just send email, they say, well, would you write me a letter of recommendation? But I think students should attach the their CV or their resume with the qualifications and the requirements for that scholarship or the school that they are applying. So make the job easy on your letter writers. Don't just expect that they know all your credentials. Don't expect they would remember every details and they just write you a glowing letter. I had some students that they even provided bullet points. This is my skills. These are the things that I've done. This is my leadership skills. This is what I'm good at or what I've been working on. And that makes my job much, much easier because even if I miss it in their CV, now I do remember that, well, this is important. I need to mention that, you know, they had this leadership. But I think, again, it goes back to both interactions and also students not knowing what it goes to these letters. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what faculty should write in those letters to make it more clear for the students. Right. I was thinking when you were talking, some students may shy away from asking professors to write letters if, let's say, they didn't start out doing well in the class. They think right away, I got an A, I'm going to go talk, you know, get a letter from this professor. But sometimes I've had students 
asked me for letters and let's just say they started out performing really poorly in the class. And then at the end of the semester, they received the B. But when I think about where they started from and the persistence and the things they did to increase their grade, and you can show the growth and maturity of the student through the letter, I think that's better than a student who just got an A and it was effortless. And that goes along with students that enter my research lab. You know, sometimes I take on a student and I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> right. And then at the end of the three years or the four years, I'm like, oh my goodness, it was such a drastic change in a student. They may not have done groundbreaking research, but if I look at their skill set, like how they grew from having a very sloppy lab notebook to coming to research group meetings and being on point and writing in their presentation, sometimes those are my best letters. When I've seen academic growth, maturity level growth, soft skills growth, those are my best letters. And sometimes I just go back and I read them because I'm like, wow, this was a really great student. And sometimes you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the box. You just need to have that work ethic. And sometimes that's what could make your letter different from everybody else's who came out with a 4.0. Wonderful point. Yeah, I think Kim, you said perfect about the fact that you don't have to be the A student the effort, the work ethics. We're all faculty. We know that we don't have to be the, the smartest people, right, to be here. But a work ethics goes a very long way. It's not just about getting good grades in a particular class. Yeah, I think if you can point out those in a reference letter, that's gold. That's what we're looking for. What, that's what we want to write. And that's what a letter writer should ask for. Right. So, yeah, that needs to be demonstrated in order for the letter writer to really put that in place. Yeah. And also maybe we should talk about the format of these letters for the students if they are listening. How do we write these letters? And I guess it's important to talk about how much detail goes to these letters and what are the formats? Yeah, that's a good point. Typically, my standard format is I introduce myself first. So I'll just kind of let the reviewers know I'm a faculty member at School X. I've been here for this number of years. And during this time, I've taught or I've had X number of students in my research group in the past so many years. And most of my research students go on to do X, Y, and Z. So I kind of couch it so they'll know this is the quality of students that come out of my research lab. And then in the next paragraph, I introduce the project, if they worked in my research group, what they worked on. And then I try to talk about what was their specific contribution to that research project. Then I break it into different type of subcategories. So I'll say their leadership skills, the potential skills that I saw. And most often, they always want to hear about a weakness. They never want you to just say everything was great about the student. So I try to think of a weakness or area of potential growth. So I do have one paragraph about that. And then I usually summarize with stating where they rank in the category with all of the undergraduate students I've had in my research group. So I'll say out of in the past three years, 
this student rank within the top 10% of my research group. And those usually those top 10 go on to X, right? So I always try to rank it so that they'll kind of know in my mind where this student falls. And I follow the same format if they took my class. I'll try to talk about them coming to office hours, topics they excel at, a topic that maybe they didn't grasp too well, but they tried to do X, Y, Z. And then again, I'll just rank them compared to other students in that particular cohort. So that's kind of the format that I usually use. It's kind of generic, but I think three to four paragraphs is usually where I try to keep it leveled off. I do the same. And one other thing that I guess I add, I mentioned that how long I've known the person and in what capacity. Yeah, I don't copy and paste these letters, but I do use a very similar template, like each paragraph describe something. And then the ones who had done research with me in my lab, if they published papers, many of them do be a co-author or even actually a few times a lead author, then I really highlight because it's unusual at this level to make that kind of accomplishment. I think that kind of uniqueness in their sort of credential would really shine in a lot of these fellowship type of programs or fellowship applications. I also talk about if this is a graduate school application, I will talk about what I foresee their potential, you know, based on this and how they do research, because some people are good at textbooks, right? So they can get all A's in all the regular classes, but then if they don't know research, then what's the point, right? So it depends on what they're applying. If this is a graduate school application, I would say, you know, based on this and this, I observed, I could see he or she is going to be a future star in this field, in the graduate school program, in your whatever the school's program. Yeah. One other thing that I typically write is their ability to be independent and work in a group, right? So sometimes it's a fine line because a student could be very independent, but then isolate themselves in a research group or in the classroom. They're really smart, but they don't talk to anybody. <laughs> Sometimes I try to point that out or the reverse where they're really dynamic in a group. They're the go-to person in the research lab, but then they can't do something independently, right? They might be able to follow instructions, but if they get stuck, it's sort of like a dead end. So I try to talk about that skill set too because you definitely want a person to have a good balance of both. And I try to talk about the amount of time. So I'll say, if you take on student X, they may need to be mentored about this aspect or something like that, just to give the faculty member an idea, the commitment or the time, and then try to tell them, but it's worth it. <laughs> if you spend this time with the student, it's worth it. Yeah, so talking about those, it just reminded me that I also try to mention if they are first generations that they are going through college or doing research or applying for the applications. Like as Lucy mentioned, I don't copy and paste it. I try to tailor every letter based on the candidate. And I try to make sure that those uniqueness come out because it's very competitive. These things matter. Yeah. I think we covered a lot of good points for both students whom they should ask for these letters and for the letter writers, what we should include in these letters for them to really stand out. 
So these are all really important aspects in all these students' future careers. So all the students who are applying for graduate school or applying for these graduate school applications, what you really need to do is to start thinking early and think about who these letter writers are and what you want them to know about you before they are committed to write these letters. So a lot of homework needs to be done. It's not just like one day I'll write a random email to someone hoping for a letter. Even if you do get that letter, it's not going to be strong. It's not going to really count for anything. So take these things seriously. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. This episode is sponsored by DeGrider and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGrider's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.